0: is a big problem. Um So if it came down to a vote as to why you're here tonight, whether it's for the preaching or for the candy, I suspect that I know how that vote would go and I would lose by a sizable uh, margin, but uh, whichever way, I'm so glad that you're here tonight and I appreciate your being here. We, we do plan to, to have a good time after the services are over as well, but I hope that uh, this service is meaningful to you, and I think that you will draw closer to God because of the time that we've spent together. I, I've already enjoyed our singing. Amen? Just wonderful to be able to sing together with God's people. Speaking of elections, would you believe me if I told you that no one in the city of Memphis is going to be allowed to vote in the, in the state elections or even in the national election in just a little over a week? Would you believe me if I told you that 2 plus 2 does not equal 4? Actually, if you consider the framework, both of those statements are true. There's a city in Memphis, uh, a city in Egypt rather, that's named Memphis. And people, of course, in that uh, city or that uh, particular place are not citizens of Tennessee. They're not residents of Memphis, and so they're not going to be allowed to vote in the state or the national elections. And if we use the base 10 mathematical system, as we ordinarily do, 2 plus 2 equals 4, as we've always learned. But if you switch to a base 3 system, then, of course, there is no 4. And so 2 plus 2 equals 11. I feel like you ought to be taking notes on this. <laughs> there, there will be a test later. The point being, before we can ever come to any agreement on just virtually any subject, there has to be a common frame of reference We have to be dealing with the same basic authority behind that discussion. We have to have the same mental framework, as it were. Otherwise, nothing will make sense. And Christians and non-Christians, I'm just convinced, oftentimes fail to understand one another because they're operating with completely different frames of reference. The basis, the foundation for all behavior has to have some kind of foundation, There's no arguing the point that people certainly behave differently. All we've got to do is just stay tuned to the news and you will see people doing some very atrocious things. Sometimes that behavior is inconsequential and sometimes it's quite significant. Sometimes people's behavior is moral. Sometimes it is clearly immoral. But then sometimes it is also amoral. And we'll explain what we mean in just a moment regarding all of those terms. So we decide, you know, what to have for breakfast. That's inconsequential. It doesn't really matter what you decide that you want for breakfast. But then we also, in the same day, decide whether or not we're going to be faithful to our husband or wife. And that's something that has a great deal of consequence to it. We decide what color of socks to wear. We decide whether or not to serve God. I believe that we would all agree that those two matters are... In different universes, in terms of their weight and their consequence. But our behavior, for good or bad, is, is based on something, and that's the point that I'm seeking to establish. Why do we behave the way we do? The short answer is our behavior is based on our values. Behaviors differ from one person to another because we have different values. And again, you don't have to have a degree in philosophy to understand and to appreciate and to embrace that fact. One person places high value on maybe a new sports car, so his behavior is going to be different from someone who doesn't. The values that we place on things like money, on fame, on God on our Christian family, on physical parents, on on our health, education. All of those things are the things that determine our behavior. Whether or not those matters are matters of any importance to us is going to determine how we act as we walk through this life. But let's take it a step back a step farther. Certainly our behavior is determined by our values, but we also then have to ask what is it that determines our values? There's even a foundation under that that needs to be considered. Why do we have the values that we have? Well, succinctly stated, our values are based on our worldview. Now, that's basic enough to be axiomatic, and we're going to build on that in this study. How how we view the world determines pretty much how we view life. And, and, And not only that, how we view our place in life and how we ought to behave for the brief time that we breathe air and we occupy space on this planet, and so I don't think that the title for tonight's lesson was too grandiose or esoteric. I hope not, but really, is it's talking about the meaning of life? What are we here for? What is it that, that needs to be the sun and bottom of our lives? What is the driving force in our lives? And and if you were to ask the average person on the street, you might get a plethora. In fact, no might about it. You would get a variety of different answers. But when we look at God's Word, and we're here tonight hopefully because we're believers and because we place a great deal of confidence and faith in what God has revealed to us in His Word, we find a completely different answer than if we were to simply go out and poll the average person on the streets of Montgomery, Alabama. How we view the world determines how we view life. And so we need to address and answer questions like what is this world? And where did it come from? And what is the nature of man? And does God exist? And if he exists, is he really responsible for all that we are and that all that we see in this universe? What is life for? Or maybe said another way, we really need to find answers to the three fundamental questions of life. Where did we come from? What are we doing here? And as important, where are we going? And I guarantee you, someone who is not reflective enough or maybe even aware enough to ask and answer those three questions as they walk through life is living a very superficial lifestyle. I think we would be in tacit agreement on that point. So in that sense, everyone is, is for something. That is, every person has an intended function. Every person has a purpose. And again, it, we, we get that from reading the owner's manual. Because you're not going to necessarily intuit that from life. Again, if you were to ask the average person, they might say, well, hopefully I'll, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins kind of thing, a materialistic worldview. Or maybe they would like to have fame. Maybe they would like to have adulation in the athletic world. Hopefully they would like to, maybe they'd like to win an Oscar, you know, for act, their acting ability, whatever it might be. But all of those things are determined by their values, and their values are determined by their worldview. For example, let me illustrate, if I may, in a very fundamental sort of way, what we mean about the purpose, the design for our lives. A a fork is for eating. Again, maybe you want to take notes on this. A a fork is for eating. A shovel is for digging holes in the ground. And, And if you were to mix those two things up, and if you were to try to eat with a shovel and to try to dig a hole in the ground with a fork, you wouldn't have a great deal of success because that's not what those things are for. And you all knew that when you came in here. What's a human being for? More specifically, what are you for? What are you here on this planet for? And if you haven't asked yourself that question at least in the last 24 hours, I would encourage you to do just that. And I'm also suggesting that when you can answer those questions, when you've dealt with all of those questions in your life, then you'll know your worldview, which determines your values, which in turn is going to determine your behavior. Basically, there are two worldviews in our culture. This isn't at all deep because I'm incapable of doing that. But I hope that we understand in a very practical way what these two worldviews are all about and where they come from. You've bought into one or the other. Jesus said everybody has. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount in about halfway through it, in Matthew 6, 24, he said no man can serve Two masters. Number one, let's stop and clarify that the Lord is establishing that if you were to consider all the worldviews there are, they would all boil down into just two. No man can serve two masters, Jesus said. He'll either hate the one, love the other. He'll cling to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Some versions say that just means this world's goods and interests. So it comes down to, is this world all there is? is? Is dying with the most toys, with the most money in your bank account, is that what really life is all about? And whoever has the most clout, the most fame, the most power, the most political pull in this world, is he going to be able to, to pillow his head and then, Pass from this life and someone will engrave on his tombstone this man, this woman, had great purpose in their lives because they accomplished these things. Or is there something else that we need to be looking through our binoculars at as we began to identify what our worldview is? And Jesus says, of course. And the other side is God. And once we've isolated and, and we've determined that in our lives, it goes a great a great distance in being able to answer all the other ancillary questions that we might have about life. So let's deal with those very quickly in turn. First of all, there's the non-Christian worldview, and that's very obvious. For the non-Christian, the purpose of life basically is to experience pleasure. And I know that's kind of oversimplifying, but that's basically it. It's to experience pleasure, to be able to have fun, to do that which pleases me, and then to stay away and avoid as much displeasure slash pain as possible. And so if I'm evaluating my life at the end of my life from the non-Christian worldview, if I've experienced as much pleasure, stayed away from as much displeasure as possible, then I'm going to consider my life basically to have been successful. So at the basis of each decision, the non-Christian is asking those questions, what would I like best? What would please me most in any given situation? Ernest Hemingway is the one who is at least said according to what I've read, to have defined the word moral as, and I'm quoting now, what you feel good after. So whatever act you perform, if you feel good about that afterwards, then that is moral. Wow. Is that all there is to it? No, that's not even close. At least not according to God's rule book. This worldview can be seen by looking back at Christian history and looking at the Roman arena where Christians were thrown to the lions as entertainment. That's not just a part of cinema, folks. That's a part of history. Christians thrown to lions in the arena to entertain folks. The Romans, who believed that their purpose in life was to experience as much pleasure as possible, simply could not, and please forgive the language, could not understand these stupid Christians. Why would they give their lives? Why would they waste their lives following this man from Nazareth and blindly, at least according to their es- estimation, place so much value? In fact, everything in their lives circuit uh, was, was a circuit around Jesus Christ. He was the center and the circumference of their existence. And then if they could see 2,000 years into the future and see those of us who could be doing something else, sitting in a church building and singing these beautiful songs and continuing to praise God for the deliverance that he has made possible, the redemption that he made possible for us on that old rugged cross, they would really be scratching their heads. They just didn't understand it. And that comes as no surprise to us in the modern world because, after all, what we're doing and what our worldview and our values is, those things are are a conundrum to the world. They don't get it. And, and certainly on the Christian side of things, when they were being thrown to, to the lions, there was no pleasure in being killed or eaten by a lion. I think that would be an understatement, don't you? And so, why would they do that? All they—and by they, I mean the Christians—had to do, in order to be able to prevent that that awful, deadly outcome of being thrown to the lions in the arena, was simply to say, "Caesar is Lord." And they could go free. But watch this carefully, church. They wouldn't do it. And they went to their deaths with songs and words of praise on their lips to the Lord who made it all possible. Now, again, the world didn't understand it then. They still don't understand it. Why can't you just say those little three words? After all, haven't we heard this argument in the modern world? They're just words. No, to the children of God, those words meant something, and they still do. I will not deny, I will not recant my faith for any price. Second, there's the Christian worldview. The Christian enjoys pleasure just like anybody else. I mean, we're not as weird as the world would have us to believe. And just like anybody else, we don't like experiencing displeasure. So we're pretty much wired as human beings the same way in that regard. But that's... That's not what he's for. He understands, she understands that that's not why God has put us on this planet and why we are breathing this good air and occupying space for a period of a few years. That's not not why we're here. That's not the purpose of life, the experiencing of pleasure, the avoidance of displeasure. No for the Christian. The ultimate purpose of life is to bring glory to God. So he marshals his time, his energy, and his resources to that end. Anything that we can do to glorify God. That's what we're for. That's what we're here for. And and the basis of each decision are these fundamental questions. What will bring more honor to God? And, And what would he have me to do? That is, as we've been talking about for the last few Sunday nights, what is the will of God? He even understands, as we've been talking about. That our prayer life is not to get man's will done in heaven, it's to get God's will done on earth. Everything that he or she thinks about as a child of God all falls under the umbrella of, is this the will of God? Is this what God wants to happen? Is this what he, the purpose that he has for each of us as we're living here on this earth? And when the will of God is involved in any decision, pleasure has nothing to do with the decision making process. May I say that again? When the will of God is involved, pleasure has nothing to do with the decision making process. A true child of God who has really grown into his or her discipleship never asks, Is this going to be fun? That's not the basis. For the decision-making process, the Christian is very much aware of, of the passage that Richard read a moment ago as our text, "Ecclesiastes 12:13." And what a powerful passage that is, because of where it comes. At the very end of Solomon's having gone through the laboratory of life, trying like everybody else in 2018 to find peace, purpose, and happiness in life. I mean, he really typifies every person who's ever walked this planet. If they're in their right mind, they want peace. They want happiness. They want fulfillment and purpose. And that's exactly what Solomon was trying to find. And yet he tried all of these things that people in our day 2,000 years later are still trying to, to use and define find in order to bring happiness and purpose in their lives. And yet, when he comes to the end of that road, he says, all has been heard. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here it is. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole of man. Now, if you're reading from some versions, it will supply the word duty. But my understanding is, in the primary language, that word is not there. This is the whole of man. This is the entirety of man's existence. This is what we're here for. What? To fear God and to keep his commandments. And the child of God also comes to be very fond of Colossians 3:17. Whatever you do in word or in deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father by him. That is there is authority behind what we're doing. It's not just I've tried everything and here's what works best some kind of existential pragmatic view of life no this is this is the christian really understanding that here's what god has positively authorized for me to be doing and my whatever i'm doing in word that is in speech or indeed is going to be authorized by by what god wants me and you to do while we're on this planet so one thing one thing you cannot do is to keep a Christian from glorifying God. That's his nature. That's who he is, and that's what he's here for. Torture him if you will, kill him if you must, but he'll only glorify God in his persecution and in his death. It needs to also be pointed out, I think, at this juncture, that the Christians in the Roman arena didn't understand the Romans either. We've already dealt with the other side of that coin, how that the Romans could not understand why anyone would allow themselves to be thrown to the lions when all they had to say was Caesar is Lord but that, uh, that conundrum, that perplexity was on the part of God's people as well. They couldn't understand the thinking, the mindset, the mental framework of of those Romans that were doing this. The Christians knew the purpose of life was to glorify God. And they also knew that those Romans, what they were doing was an affront to God. And so Christians were all the time asking, how can they do this? Don't they know how this must make God feel? Don't they know how this must break God's heart? You see, it wasn't even about them at that moment. Here I am giving my life for the cause. They were one wondering what effect is this having on God? Why can't they see that that's not God's will? That's not God's purpose for them or for us. And even though they couldn't understand the Romans, they died with a song of praise to God on their lips and a quiet confidence in their hearts that said, I know something you don't know. And that's where we are 2,000 years later, folks. And that's why we see a divided nation And that's why we see on one side people screaming one thing, holding their signs. On the other side of the road, people holding their signs with the opposing view. And and every day we see our news filled with people who have two different world views and neither one of them understand each other. We need to also note that there continues to be that clash and always will be, if I've read scripture correctly, between these two worldviews. Till the Lord comes back, there's always going to be some abrasion, some animosity, some antagonism, at least some questioning and perplexity between these two worldviews. Always has been, always will be. And Jesus predicted that with these words found in John 15 and verse 19. Talking to his disciples now, he said, if you were of the world... The world would love its own. I want to stop right there for a moment. If you were just like them, is what Jesus is saying, they would embrace you and accept you, and they would love you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I don't know how the disciples reacted to that spiritually or emotionally when the Lord first spoke those words. But it was exactly what they and we need to hear. Because it really explains it all, doesn't it? It explains the newspaper headlines. It explains what we see on CNN and Fox News and every other news source. It explains what's going on in this world and right here in our own nation and in our own city Let me say just a word, if I may, about trying to do right for the wrong reasons. The problem is that Christians are constantly tempted to justify their behavior and their lifestyles by the non-Christian worldview. Let me explain what I mean by that. We try to point out sometimes when we're encouraging people to become Christians themselves that faithfully serving the Lord brings more pleasure. We use the pleasure principle to justify why and what we're doing. Let me illustrate if I may. We advertise our youth rallies by saying there will be a lot of fun. We ask people to join a Bible study group because I think you'll really enjoy it. Or singles are urged to attend a special retreat because we're going to be there to meet your special needs. Allow me to ask, why are we tempted To go back to the pleasure principle, to the non-Christian worldview, to justify the need for our activities. I think there's two reasons why we do that, at least two major reasons. Number one, because our culture is based on the pleasure principle. We're surrounded by it, we're immersed in it, we accept it by osmosis at an almost subconscious level. Almost every television program we watch, and every song we hear, and every magazine we read, and every movie that we view... It's based on the non Christian worldview. I think that we would be in agreement on that point as well. Just consider the incidents of, of drunkenness and adultery, homosexuality, and the other non Christian activities that are depicted in an average 30 minutes of television. In fact, it would probably be impossible to go home and channel surf and find any program that did not have at least one of those things highlighted. Sometimes as the premise of the show itself, and note that those, those activities are depicted as normal. Again, the thrust, the premise of the show itself may be to emphasize the normalcy, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, the normalcy of those activities and how strange you are and how weird you are if you don't engage in those yourself. Even the good family shows have a non-Christian worldview as their basis. Here's how old I am. I can remember back in the 1980s, there used to be a sitcom on television called Family Ties. I remember a specific episode where Mallory, the teenage girl in that family, was deciding whether or not to have intimate relations with her boyfriend. And so what she did was to go around and talk to people that she had a great deal of respect for and confidence in and ask them that question, should, should I sacrifice my virginity to this young man? She asked her boyfriend first. You know how he voted. And then she asked her brother, and then she asked her parents, and she asked one of her teachers, watch this carefully, none of them had an answer for her. None of them could say yes or no for any reason whatsoever, and that really shouldn't surprise us. Because the non-Christian worldview has no answer for the millions of teenage Mallories in the world right now who are asking that same question. In fact, the very fact that she agonized over that question is considered antiquated and passé by a world that has left God and God's standards and values far behind. It's assumed on most TV shows and movies today that that activity is normal. But to refrain from that activity is is what's abnormal. And and we're being sold that every day. No wonder, no wonder, especially our young people are fighting such a battle in these areas. I I submit that the television industry claims to only reflect modern culture and not to set our values. But I'm telling you, it doesn't accurately reflect our culture. I mean, you never see a happy, healthy Christian family who has Jesus at the center of their lives, even though a full 60% of Americans claim to be Christian. Maybe that's why television is called a medium, because it is neither rare nor well done. A second reason that Christians are tempted, I I can't wait for all of you now. (laughs) A second reason that Christians are tempted to revert to the pleasure principle to rationalize and to explain is because many decisions are appropriately based there. And we need to acknowledge that. As we mentioned moments ago, There are some decisions that are just amoral. They're neither right nor wrong within themselves. They do not have an ethical dimension to them at all. Do you want orange juice or grape juice for breakfast? That's an amoral decision. You're not violating God's will if you go in one direction or the other. Do you want to drive a Ford, a Chevrolet, a Toyota, or a Honda? Well, since the will of God would allow either choice, then it's appropriate to decide the basis of uh, of pleasure or personal preference. Which of those would I like more? And and so there are some decisions that are based in our life, in the life of a child of God, on the pleasure principle because there are so many valid decisions made on that basis. Sometimes it's difficult, though, to know where to draw the line and to know when pleasure is not, not only the main criterion but a criterion at all in making this decision. But mark it down, Christians always seek to honor God because that's what we're for. That's why we're here. And if we lose sight of that, we have just enlisted in an army that is going to be constantly fighting battle after battle after battle. Even on a a Christian college university campus, those battles are still being fought. And as we mentioned this morning, it's not just our teenagers, our young people, it's the grown-ups as well, who every day have to wake up to decisions, choices that we make. They're basically saying, "For God or against God, either God or this world's interests and in goods." That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6:24. You know, ironically, much preaching is done to attempt to justify Christianity from a non-Christian worldview. It's as though we're saying, "Sure, our purpose is to find pleasure, but in the long run, I, I want to, to tell you that living your life as a Christian will bring more pleasure. And that's pretty much it in terms of our rationale in trying to convince and motivate you to be a Christian. We point out, for instance, that following Christian principles will help you to avoid alcoholism and illegitimate pregnancies, and and we imply that those are the reasons why you should be a Christian. And sure, all of those things are true. We point out that by following Christian principles, you're you're more likely, or at least most likely, to have a happy, stable home. And again, we, we imply that the major thing that should motivate you to live as a Christian is because of all of those benefits that will come about in your life if you do decide to follow Jesus. And while both of those statements are generally true, that is not the primary reason why anybody should ever become a Christian. You ought to be a Christian, even if it brings persecution and death. Even if it means that your family forsakes you because you made that decision. Even if you never have another happy moment in your life, here's the paradox, you can still be filled with Joy and a peace that Paul said in Philippians 4 7, the world simply cannot comprehend. We need to get it on straight. While it's generally true that living by Christian principles brings more pleasure, it's not always true. During the Roman persecution, there was no pleasure, short or long run, in this life by being dragged through the streets by a running horse. That's what they did to some Christians simply because they refused to deny their faith. But it was still the right decision to hold on to that faith, even if it meant dying. Even today, I know some people who remain in difficult circumstances, not because it brings them any personal pleasure, but because God is honored by so doing. Some remain in difficult church situations. I talk to people on almost a weekly basis that are with tiny little struggling churches. And they're they're holding on. Should we leave? Should we try to find a stronger church somewhere? Should we stay here? And should we try to bolster the church and help the church and get it on its feet? I mean, those are the things that people are wrestling with outside the circumference of this church building and so they remain in those difficult situations when there's precious little personal joy because they have been convinced that it is that it is God's will that they do so you see when the will of God is involved pleasure is not The motivation, that's the message that I want you to go home with in your heads and in your hearts tonight. Christians need to recognize the clear fundamental difference between the two worldviews and how those define us. We need to live a life that is consistent with our worldview. That is the worldview that God would have us to have, fully expecting to be misunderstood by all those people who don't share that worldview. So don't let it come as a surprise to you. Don't be shocked when the world hates us, Jesus said. And when we understand that clear clash between these fundamental worldviews, there are some passages of scripture that take on new meaning. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in faith, I live by the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 and verse 20. How about this one from Romans 6, 17 and 18? But God be thanked. Though that some of you were slaves to sin, you became slaves to righteousness. How you can be a slave and be spiritually emancipated at the same time, the world will never be able to explain. But you can. You know how that works. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, that you have from God, and that you're not your own, but you've been brought with a, bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Sometimes the behavior of the world and the behavior of the Christian is compatible. I want to make sure that you understand that before we all go home. They don't always clash, but even then they spring from two entirely different sources and they'll often be at odds with one another. I can enjoy a Braves game as much as a person in the world can, or maybe more, but maybe for a completely different set of reasons. I hope that makes sense. The Christian has settled the basic questions of who he is, and even more important, whose he is. He does right simply because, because it's right. No other reason. Whether it's fun or whether it's pleasant has very little to do with it. And then if God chooses to bless you with health and prosperity on top of your quest to be holy and godly, that's fine. Praise him for that. But if he chooses that you should be thrown to the lions, that's fine too. Just praise God anyway. I want to leave you with the perspective of an Old Testament prophet by the name of Habakkuk. Absolutely love this verse. Two verses, actually. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. This is Habakkuk. Well, I'll hold that for a moment. Here's what the verse says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Here it is. Wait for it. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's Habakkuk saying, I'm not in it for the pleasure. I'm not in it for the fun. I'm in it to do God's will. And no matter what happens to me, even if everything in life goes against me, I'm going to go to my grave praising God anyway. And if that's what you want to be a part of tonight, won't you come while we stand and while we sing? upon your ear. Sweet his cry of love and pity calleth, turn and listen, stay and hear, ye the labor and not. morning in particular the Lord's Supper. It's still prepared in the seminar room as Izzy leads us in this last song. Go through these double doors to my right and your left and you'll be served. I was asked to ask, uh, ask whoever was saying the closing prayer to remember to pray for our food, which seems appropriate when 500 hot dogs are involved. <laughs> Number 694. We'll sing the first and the last verses. Let us sing. <laughs> to Canaan's land, my bread, and my way, the soul us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day.